Welcome to Coast Range Radio, a production of the Coast Range Association. I'm your host, Michael Gaskill. Today's topic is something I've been interested in learning more about for a while now. Many of you may be familiar with the amazing carbon sequestration potential of forests, and I hope our listeners are familiar with the Coast Range Association's groundbreaking land reform work focusing on private timberlands. But forests aren't the only ecosystem heroes in our fight against climate change. Our oceans and nearshore environments hold enormous potential as well. Blue carbon refers to the carbon stored in coastal and marine ecosystems. And the Nature Conservancy has just released a blue carbon state of the science report, focusing on Oregon, and I'm excited to be joined by one of the authors of that report, Joanna Lyle. Joanna is an Oregon Sea Grant fellow working with the Nature Conservancy to explore carbon sequestration potential in Oregon's coastal and nearshore environments. And we're also joined by Sylvia Troost from Pew Charitable Trust. Sylvia's work focuses on incorporating blue carbon into Pew's marine-based climate action plans. Before we get started, I want to encourage you to share this podcast with your friends, leave us a rating and review on your podcast app, etc. I also love hearing feedback and guest ideas, anything else. My email is michael at coastrange.org. And our website is simply coastrange.org. Okay, on with the show. Well, Joanna Lyle and Sylvia Troost, welcome to Coast Range Radio. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So let's start with the with the ground level basics here. You know, first off, um, I want to know how you all define blue carbon and and why it's important. And then I'm hoping we can also kind of ground us briefly in what that looks like on the ground. You know, what are we talking about when we talk about blue carbon in Oregon? And what should our listeners be picturing throughout this conversation? Sure, I'm happy to start. Um, thanks, Michael. So as you mentioned at the outset, blue carbon refers to carbon dioxide that is absorbed from the atmosphere and stored in coastal and ocean ecosystems. And it's called blue because of the watery nature of this carbon storage. Um, so when we think about Oregon's, Oregon's estuaries and coastal areas can be considered blue carbon hotspots. So eelgrass beds, tidal marshes, forest to tidal wetlands, which are all found in these areas, are really great at efficiently capturing and storing carbon. And if these areas are left undisturbed, they can keep storing this carbon for hundreds of years, if not millennia. So, I mean, why is blue carbon important? Well, coastal blue carbon is important because even though they occupy a pretty relatively small footprint on the planet, you know, they are incredibly efficient at capturing and storing carbon. And they can bury carbon at rates on par or even exceeding tropical rainforests. So this means that they can help reduce climate change by keeping carbon out of the atmosphere and locked away in the ground. Um, but this is a double-edged sword because if these ecosystems are degraded or disturbed, they can release this carbon back into the atmosphere, actually contributing to climate change. So that's why it's super important to protect these places and restore where we can. Right. And that's I'm really glad that you brought that up right at the top. If we take care of them, then they'll help take care of us and, and vice versa. So briefly, you know, what does that look like on the ground in Oregon? Like what... Um, I live near, for instance, I live sort of near Newport, Oregon. Um, 
what should I be picturing in terms of the, you know, the types of ecosystems or, or places? Um, and if Newport doesn't spring anything to mind than anywhere else, you know, just, just give us a little picture to kind of work off of. I can take that if you want. Yeah. Um, these habitats range from shrubby tidal wetlands, uh, grassy salt marshes that are on the shorelines, um, anywhere within the estuary, within our bays, a lot of those habitats contribute to blue carbon. Mm. And then you can also think about um, in the rocky near shore, past the tide pools where you see kelp forests and bull kelp. Um, those are also hugely productive ecosystems that we have in Oregon. And and they're some of the most biodiverse ecosystems on the planet. Okay, great. Thanks. That that helps me kind of understand and, and and picture in my mind where we're talking about. So let's jump into that state of the science report that the Nature Conservancy just released. Um, so Joanna, I'm hoping that as one of the authors, you could give us kind of a, a brief overview, you know, start with where can people find the report? What's the, you know, target audience? And what was the goal of this project? Sure. Well, the easiest way to access the report is online at Oregon Sea Grant's website on the publications page. So to give some background, TNC realized there are big studies and projections of what will happen with climate change and the role that blue carbon habitats can play. But we really didn't have information at our local or regional scale in the Pacific Northwest or Oregon. So we realized this is a key need so we can understand what blue carbon means for us here in Oregon. To prepare the report, we reviewed the literature and the current science on how tidal wetlands, eelgrass, and other habitats sequester carbon here in the Pacific Northwest, so very specific to our local ecosystems. Hmm. And once we identified these studies, we read them and synthesized them into one big science report for uh, coastal practitioners and scientists and anyone really interested um, in how blue carbon functions. We tried to put it all in one place. So the report is titled Oregon's Blue Carbon Ecosystems, the State of the Science. And you can find that by Googling that with Oregon Sea Grant or with the Nature Conservancy. Great, great. And out of curiosity, what was your um what was your role with the project? I was one of um the main researchers. So I did a lot of finding the science, uh, reading it, reviewing it, and summarizing it to put in this report. Um, I mean, it took about a year to write and publish. We read dozens of scientific papers and reports and condensed this information down into 20 short pages. So we hope it's a useful resource for anyone interested in the topic. Wow. Well, congratulations. I learned a lot reading it. And the fact that I was able to understand even some of it um, speaks to how well you all were able to take these really complex subjects and, and boil them down to to, you know, where a layperson can kind of get an overview, but still obviously having a lot of, um, I would say, good, really technical information for for folks with a deeper understanding. Sylvia, did you want to um, oh, add it? thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, Sylvia, did you have something to add before we kind of dig deeper into the the findings of the report? Yeah, I just wanted to, to note that Oregon is among the best in the nation of having blue carbon data and the Pacific Northwest. So Smithsonian 
about a year and a half ago, did a survey of the state of blue carbon information. And in the in the lower 48 states, and Oregon was right up there on the top in terms of having great information. Just wanted to add that. Wow. Okay. Well, that's interesting to to note that we have that um, bigger base to to build off of. That's really cool. Um, well, let's dig in deeper to the report itself and to the findings. Could one of you talk about uh, the different ecosystem types and species that you covered? Sure. Um, so in the report, we cover habitats in Oregon's estuaries and bays, like shrub and spruce-dominated forested tidal wetlands that Sylvia mentioned, um, also emergent salt marshes near the shoreline, and submerged eelgrass meadows. But in the report, we're also inclusive of habitats like kelp forests that are often left out of the blue carbon conversation. And we also address potential climate contributions of not habitats, but things like ocean mammals like whales and otters, as well as seaweed farming and shellfish aquaculture. Yeah, you covered a lot of ground. Um, so I'm wondering what some of the key findings of the report are. So first of all, what do we what do we know and what requires more study? And uh, and yeah, just talk through some of the key findings. Sure. So because of a lot of the work done by regional partners through existing networks like the Blue Carbon Working Group, um, that, that's the Pacific Northwest Blue Carbon Working Group, Oregon is really poised to lead the way on blue carbon in the U.S., like Sylvia mentioned. Tidal wetlands in particular have an amazing base of knowledge here in Oregon. Tidal wetlands are really a focus because they're they don't really move a lot. They're located in in the estuaries and bays, so they don't experience a whole lot of disturbance. Um, and sediment from upstream settles out in in the estuary, and these marshes are able to to build up over time. They actually um, what's called a crete vertically, so sediment um, gets laid down, and then the plants grow on top of the older layers, um, and that really locks all of that carbon and plant material in place and stores it over a really long period of time. So these these habitats um, have a, a wonderful mechanism of locking carbon in place. And as you move up in elevation from, from the water, from the shoreline up into our tidal wetland forests, really just an amazing amount of carbon is locked in the soils there. What um, of the areas you studied, where are our greatest potential ecosystems or species, et cetera, um, for carbon sequestration? Our bays and our estuaries contain the habitats with the best known carbon potential, blue carbon potential, that is. Our tidal wetlands are incredible at producing carbon and building those soils that lock it in place, as I mentioned. Our tidal forests are made up of Sitka spruce, um, and they have carbon stocks on the same level as tropical mangroves and Oregon's old growth forests. Um, so that's a lot of carbon, but unfortunately, we've lost almost all of it. We've lost about 95% of its historic extent on the coast. Um, on the brighter side, Tidal scrub shrub habitats, these are areas made up of thickets of willows and small trees, are being recognized as carbon sequestration rock stars. Mm. And they're relatively easy to restore, whereas restoring um, 
the spruce swamps, these um, Sika spruce wetlands, it takes a really long time to grow those spruce trees. Wow. Okay. That's very interesting. Can I hold on that for just a second? Because, you know, when I walk through an old growth forest, as, as rare as they are, you can just see the carbon everywhere. You know, it's it's in these massive trees. It's in the duff of the ground. And it's just so obvious, right? But when I, you know, walk around in, in what I think I'm, I'm picturing when you're talking about the scrub shrub habitat, it's not as clear to me how that um, is on par, right, with those old growth forests. So where where is that? You know, like how how does that work? Yeah. So the total amount of carbon when you're thinking of scrub shrub thicket in the wetlands, the tidal wetlands versus the old growth forest, that's not what I'm talking about. There's a lot more carbon standing in old growth forests than in these tidal wetlands. But scrub shrub habitats are able to build carbon in their stalks much faster at a much faster rate than other habitats. And when I think of these forested tidal wetlands, as they're called, which include these shrubby wetlands and the forested Sitka spruce-dominated wetlands, you can really see see the buildup of carbon through time. So at one point in time, centuries, centuries, and centuries ago, those spruce swamps may have once been shrub wetlands. Um, Over time, as those shrubs grow and fall down and the soil builds up, it creates the foundation for spruce trees, for example, to take root and for them to grow up. So when you're comparing spruce tidal wetlands to old growth forests, the biggest difference is in the soil. There's a lot more soil there and the salinity there holds on to carbon. It doesn't release it like you would see in um, an upland forest where there's a lot of decomposition going on that re-releases carbon to the atmosphere. That's a great answer. Thanks so much. That really clarifies things for me. Sylvia, did you have anything to add? Or Joanna, did you want to talk about any other um, ecosystem types? With respect to um, the forested tidal wetlands that um, in Oregon, there is a lot of interest in restoring these these habitats. Um, and as you know, Joanna noted earlier, that in addition to being carbon powerhouses, they're also very important for for fish like salmon, wildlife. So it's kind of a no regret measure, really, <laughs> it, you know, to find areas where it is possible to restore and then and then do that restoration. So you get multiple bang for your buck in addition to carbon. I really appreciate you making that point because even though you know, um, ecosystem services and 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 biodiversity um, concerns aren't really what we're specifically focusing on today. It is really important to be pointing out that like all of this works together. You know, when we take care of the habitat, we get so many of these co-benefits. So so it really is a win-win situation. So thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, Joanna, if you had any anything to add or speak more about in terms of. Um, places with the greatest carbon sequestration potential? Well, one area that really needs a lot more focus, um, but the potential is there, is in our coastal kelp forests. So I want to mention there's an ongoing scientific discourse on how much kelp and seaweeds contribute to carbon sequestration because it's really hard to measure 
where that carbon ends up because you know the ocean is a di- I, the ocean is a dynamic place and waves you know crash through tear off pieces of kelp and and it's hard to track where that ultimately ends up but kelp and seaweeds absorb a lot of carbon during their growth and then they detach like i mentioned they can float out to sea and sink into the deep ocean the question really is how much carbon makes it to permanent storage and how can we manage and enhance this but one really amazing tidbit is that up to a third of the carbon that we can measure within eelgrass meadows comes from kelp. Large pieces of kelp get shredded up into tiny particles that float and settle out into the estuary. And a third is a huge amount. And that's just from canopy forming species like bull kelp. So I'm just excited for kelp and seaweed to get the attention it deserves in the carbon realm. Yeah, thank you for uh, touching on kelp. And and that goes back to the point we were just talking about with code benefits, you know, because obviously kelp serves so many other really critical, you know, purposes uh, for our ecosystems. And so it is really important that we're focusing on those, especially since, you know, in Oregon, California, we're having such devastation of these kelp forests. Yeah, and I'll just add really quickly um, on, on eelgrass beds and kelp that studies indicate that these habitats can provide um, localized improvements um, for ocean acidification. So there's that added benefit as well from that climate-related threat. Oh, I had no idea. Thanks for that. Um, so I wanted to move on to the to the recommendations in the report, if that's okay. Yeah, I'm wondering what your key recommendations are, and then maybe we could talk to some of the barriers around that. Um, and opportunities. Sure. Our recommendations really focus broadly on improving and protecting the ability of the ocean and our estuaries to sequester and store carbon long-term to help fight climate change. Um, That looks like preserving existing estuary and nearshore habitats um, because it's so important to maintain those carbon storage functions along with the co-benefits to biodiversity and coastal communities. Um, We also found that restoration projects within estuaries that knock down old unused dikes and return tidal flow to trapped wetlands immediately reduces potent methane emissions, which are, it's a, methane is a greenhouse gas that is 25 times stronger than carbon dioxide. Um, And when it comes to restoration, we need these projects sooner rather than later. Carbon sequestration rates take a little while to get going. And as plants grow, they become more efficient at trapping carbon. So we expect to see a lag time between the time of restoration and when the highest carbon benefit will occur. So every year counts and nature will do its best work if we give it the time to do so. Very well put. I'm wondering if there are any projects um, that you're actively engaged in or, or looking at or what the barriers are, you know, this all seems like such a no-brainer, so why isn't this already happening everywhere? What are some of the hurdles that we need to overcome to get this going quick? Yeah, so Oregon has really some of the best data in our tidal wetlands, Um, but the difficult part is the implementation, and um, a lot of organizations, a lot of practitioners on the coast just don't have the time or resources or capacity 
to do the measurements needed to incorporate blue carbon into their practices. I mean, a lot of the restorations that are happening on the coast have carbon benefits, but we just don't know how much. Okay. Do either one of you have any standout examples of restoration opportunities that that folks we can point people towards or or maybe uh, even restoration success stories? Well, there are a lot of restoration projects on the Oregon coast that have done amazing work. Um, but there currently is there currently aren't any um, active blue carbon projects because of the newness of of the field. and it's 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 been studied really well on the science side, and it's a little bit more difficult on the implementation side. Um, I mean, I want to emphasize that there is, amazing work that is currently ongoing in the region from research collaborations within um, and these coastal organizations. I would look to the Pacific Northwest Blue Carbon Working Group again for a list of current projects. Um, our National Estuarine Research Reserve here at South Slough is also doing great um, research on blue carbon. And TNC is, is continuing to invest our time and our staff to make progress for blue carbon. We're currently supporting work to map blue carbon in estuaries across the coast. Um, so that's that's where we're working right now is identification of of areas to work to prioritize. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add to that, too, um, that the Pacific Northwest Blue Carbon Working Group is working on what they're calling a restoration opportunity map, um, starting with the Coos Bay. And that work should be um to be publicly available probably within the next six months. <laughs> um, and that will actually, um, that will be kind of an interactive web-based tool where people can actually go in and click and see where there are areas suitable for restoration and what the carbon impacts would be. So that's kind of an example of, of the research and the mapping um, that Joanna mentioned. And I would just add kind of taking the bigger picture, um, you know, Joanna mentioned resources. So it's really, you know, getting the resources and the capacity and 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 really the will, you know, and support from the community to do this sort of um, restoration projects. And also don't forget about protection as well, too. We got to keep these keep these blue carbon areas. And Oregon has pretty robust um, protections in place, but, you know, always have to be mindful of that. So the state of Oregon, you know, along with other states is looking more broadly at how they can tap into the power of nature to help fight climate change. Um, so these these are called natural climate solutions. And in Oregon, it's, you may have heard kind of the natural working land strategy that the Oregon Global Warming Commission is working on. And so, even though we all know the number one action we need to do is reduce and eventually eliminate the use of fossil fuels, this recognizes that nature can play an important part in helping slow ch climate change. So there's kind of active efforts at, at kind of the policy level, both state and federally, to really look at how we can ramp up these natural climate solutions. And so, so this great report that TNC just um, published can really help provide that information for policymakers and land managers who are interested in how kind of improved land management restoration can really aid in efforts to slow climate change as well and you know in addition to all the other benefits that that would accrue from protection and restoration such as supporting fisheries and protecting communities from flooding and whatnot so it's kind of that 
that top-down level support um, that can provide the funding and the management attention um, that can then enable these bottom-up restoration projects, protection projects um, to, to happen. Yeah, well said. Thanks for thanks for including that. And I'll just say we actually just did an episode um, kind of previewing the current Oregon 2023 legislative session, and there's a big natural climate solutions bill that is kind of the 2.0 version of the natural and working lands bill that you mentioned. Uh, Coast Range Association is working on that bill, and if folks want to learn more, check out that episode on on our website or or in your podcast app, and we'll also have more information about that coming soon. Since you were kind of talking big picture just now, Sylvia, I wonder if uh, you could talk a little bit about that big picture, because I know that you're not, you're focused larger than just Oregon. So, so could you talk kind of about your work a little bit? Sure. Um, so, we started this work at Pew um, looking for ways where we can really incentivize and improve how our coastal resources are managed to improve protections, to really jumpstart restoration, because, you know, we are kind of operating at a position of loss, as Joanna mentioned, it, what is um, true for Oregon is true around the country, that we've lost a lot of these um, these coastal wetlands, these coastal blue carbon habitats. And now is an unprecedented time really for um, really supercharging our efforts to protect these areas, to protect them from sea level rise, which is which is a big threat um, as well. And where possible to restore, um, we have unprecedented investments from the federal level um, where they're really interested in what they call nature-based solutions, um, in, including those kind of efforts that help communities and, and states um, slow climate change, but also adapt to climate change. And these sort of coastal protection and restoration efforts can do both. And then our work at the state level is as states undertake these natural working land strategies, um, as they're looking at that as a pathway to help achieve climate goals, to really elevate the role that coastal landscapes can play in these strategies. Because as you noted at the outset, the focus understandably within these kind of nature-based strategies for climate has really been kind of on better understood systems and, and quite frankly, much more extensive like forests. Um, but as Joanna noted, the state of knowledge around blue carbon has really been growing. And, and now is a great time to ensure that these um, landscapes or coastal nearshore landscapes are also included in efforts at the state level to um, to tap into the power of these habitats to help mitigate climate change. Thanks for that. As we start to wrap up here, I'm wondering if there's anything I've missed or anything either of you would like to make sure gets included in the conversation today. I think we've covered everything I wanted to discuss. Yeah, this has been a, a great conversation. I guess I would just add in the TNC report kind of gets to this when they talk about things like um, oyster beds and whatnot, is that, you know, these are all landscapes that, you know, and a healthy forest um, means, you know, healthier downstream coastal, you know, landscapes. So, um, so I know we, you know, from a measuring perspective, you know, we like to look at 
separate landscape types and things like that when we're thinking about carbon, but from a management perspective, really looking holistically and how like healthy watersheds can help support um, our coastal wetlands. So I just wanted to, to flag that as well as we're thinking about how to how to apply blue carbon in practice. So. Yeah, that's a great addition. Thinking about the connectivity between our uplands, our estuaries, and our ocean is really important. So I'm thinking more about land-sea connections and the way that we implement that in our work. Yeah, very well put from both of you. Thanks for making sure that we we include that holistic perspective. Well, one more time, I'd love to plug um, where people can find the report and where people can learn more about you all's work. The report is titled Oregon's Blue Carbon Ecosystems, the State of the Science, and you can find it online at Oregon Sea Grant's website under the Publications tab. Great. Okay. And folks can probably just, you know, Google that um, Blue Carbon State of the Science Sea Grant or Nature Conservancy. Is there any other work that you're engaged in that you want folks to know about, Joanna? I imagine you didn't probably have a lot of extra time during this last year or so for other projects, but just in case. Folks should keep an eye out for additional blue carbon products coming out in the next few months. All right. Thanks. Uh, Sylvia? Yeah, if, if people are interested in learning more about Pew's um, blue carbon work, you can check out our webpage, ptrust.org. Um, and with blue carbon in the search engine, and it'll come up. We have a lot of great resources, including um, uh, resources related to Oregon, as well as some of the other states we're working in. And we also have um, what we call our blue carbon network, which is a forum for states and, and you know, managers and others interested in blue carbon um, to get more information about um, emerging science, participate in webinars, um, and whatnot. So folks can check out Pew uh, Blue Carbon Network if they're interested in signing up. Well, Sylvia Troost and Joanna Lyle, thank you so much for joining us on Coast Range Radio. Thank you so much for your hard work and, and all the best in the future. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And that's our show. We're going to have links to the State of the Science Report and other resources in the show description of this episode of our podcast and at our website, coastrange.org. Speaking of which, our entire archive is available, you guessed it, wherever you get your podcasts or at coastrange.org. And you can email me anytime, michael at coastrange.org. Finally, please consider donating to our work by clicking the donate button in the show description of the podcast or visiting our website, which is one more time, coastrange.org. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm.